Our character this evening is John G. Payton, missionary to the cannibals of the South Seas. And we're going to focus on his evangelism. And I'd like to begin with Proverbs 11, verse 30. We ought to be evangelists as believers, and we can never start telling others about Christ too early. And Peyton is an example of that. Merely changing scenes does not change a person's heart. Just because you change schools or homes or states or countries or jobs does not change your heart. A thief will be a thief at home or far away. A boy that honors his mother will honor his wife. And just because you cross a sea or an ocean to be a missionary doesn't mean you're suddenly going to start evangelizing if you had never done that before. Luke tells us that we, if we are faithful in very little, we will be faithful in much. And John Payton is an example of this because he was a missionary, a missionary titan to the South Seas. But the reason that he was such a great evangelist is because he was a missionary to his community first before he was an evangelist to the cannibals. Proverbs 11.30, that little phrase says, he who, si- he who wins souls is wise, or in the ESV, whoever captures souls is wise. It is never too early to tell others about Christ, said Zaney, and Dakalo, and Owen. It is never too early to tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ, and Peyton is an example of that. So let's begin with this masculine, courageous, well-bearded man, John G. Payton, missionary to the cannibals of the South Seas. We'll be taking most of this from this classic autobiography. It is the autobiography of John G. Payton, which was edited by his brother, James. So, if you want to be inspired, go to this 500-page book, and it reads like a thriller. It is adventurous. It will um, keep you up at night, and it will turn the pages. So, we'll take most of this from John G. Payton, his autobiography. It's not easy to write an honest autobiography. Either you fall off the horse on one side or the other. Either you're too modest and you keep out a lot of details or uh, you're braggadocious and you praise yourself when you ought not to. I don't think that Peyton got it perfectly right either. I think he was too humble. Um, going back to his, um, his Scottish roots, um, you don't see a lot of 
certain aspects of his ministry, which his wife balances him out. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, but he had a wife named Maggie, and she wrote a book called Sketches, and she kind of balances him out. Mr. If anyone's interested, the speaker has written a shorter, easier introduction. So if, if Ethos communicates, and if you're listening to this lecture and the other lectures, and you'd like more about it, did you have your copy there? I did not bring it, no. Uh, you can get... It's sold here in this country as well. So if you like what you're hearing, and the 500 seems too much, there's an excellent introduction to his life uh, that, that from forward. Uh, Peyton says very little about his children, and you might think that's maybe a weakness in his, his uh, gifting as a father. I really don't think it was. I think it was... Just modesty, maybe a kind of Scottish modesty that says we're not going to put our children on display. We're not going to talk about our children. I'm not going to talk about this and this that I did. Let's just talk about the ministry aspects. If you want to see the family aspects, there is uh, the book that's still in print by his wife, Margaret, or Maggie Payton. And she really gives the other side, kind of the family side. The This is when John snorted tea through his nose, he was laughing too so hard type of details. This was, we were walking down the beach hand in hand, and we saw a whale spouting out water in the distance. Peyton says, no, we're not talking about that. We want to talk about the cannibals that were converted. <laughs> so it's not easy to write a faithful, I mean, who really knows themselves? But if you could write an excellent autobiography, I think Peyton did it. It was published in 1897 and is still in print today, and I would encourage you to read it. John G. Payton was born in Scotland to godly parents on May 24th, 1824. And to keep the theme of 11 children families, as we just learned from Pastor Seth with the Edwards family... This seems to be a theme because John Payton was the oldest of 11 children. There are many reasons it should not be surprising that Payton became a great missionary. Doc Hollow, I saw you making eyes there. Hey, you got some work to do, brother. Uh, he, um, it should not be surprising that Payton became a great missionary. Let me give you a couple reasons of why that should not surprise us. First of all, Peyton grew up in an incredible time in church history. And specifically the area where he grew up. He grew up in Scotland during the great century of missions. The 1800s or the 19th century, same thing, is considered the great century of missions. And here you have little Scotland, roughly the size of South Carolina, a small little country, and yet it outpunched its weight class. You have weight classes in boxing, which means you don't have a flyweight, a 140 pounder, fighting against a heavyweight who's 260 pounds. Well, here is the little flyweight, Scotland who's going toe-to-toe with these great nations and sending out more missionaries. They were sending out some of the great missionaries at that time, like David Livingston, 
who became a missionary to Africa, or Alexander Duff, who was a missionary to India, Robert Moffat, who became a missionary to South Africa, and William Burns, a missionary to China. These were all Scottish Christians. The year that Peyton was born in 1824 was the same year that the Student Missionary Society at St. Andrews was formed. And that is a story in itself. I would encourage you to read the St. Andrews 7. It tells the story of six young men who were overwhelmed with missionary zeal. The seventh man was their professor. And his name was Chalmers. And he had a great influence on them. God has often used young people to stir missionary zeal in the church. 1824 was also the year, as we learned last week, that Adoniram Judson was falsely imprisoned in Burma. So this kind of sets the, the stage a little bit. William Carey had set sail to India just a few de- decades earlier as the father of modern missions. And so at this time, missionary zeal is growing. There was a time previously that there was a lot of coldness and deadness in the Scottish church, and now it's starting to turn around, and there is great zeal among the believers. Peyton, secondly, not only was there warmth and growth in the country, but Peyton grew up in an incredibly warm, Christ-centered home. If you could choose the big three, what Peyton is known for, and often when I study these great men, it's pretty easy to pull out one great trait from them. Some of the great, great ones, you can pull out two or three. If I could pull out the trifecta from Peyton, it would be his courage, his evangelism, and his family. Not only the family he grew up in, but his own personal Family. His father was a simple sock manufacturer that had always wanted to be a missionary himself. Boys, think about that. He wanted to be a missionary himself, and the Lord, for whatever reason, didn't allow him to be a missionary. Later on in life, when Peyton was on the verge of sailing across the world. Now he's about, later on in life, early 30s, about to be a missionary. His mother revealed a family secret to him that he had heard for the first time. And this is what she said to her son. Your father's heart was set upon being a minister. Now I'm going to pause here for a moment. John Payton, as we're going to learn about later, John Payton and little Owen man. Owen, I'd like you to sit over here next to Sid Zaney, please. Thank you. He had volunteered to be a missionary to the cannibals of the New Hebrides, and everyone was discouraging him from doing it. He had called their bluff. They said, we need missionaries. Payton says, I'll do it. And they said, whoa, not you. Let's have someone else go. Payton goes home discouraged. Because everyone was talking him out of being a missionary. Who stood by him? It was his parents. I have parents like that. My parents are first generation Christians. And they never held me back. They didn't grow up 
reading missionary biographies. They didn't know who John Payton was. They knew enough to say, I think what our son is doing is great. And they encouraged me all the way. That was incredibly helpful to me. John Payton's parents were the same way. He comes home and he comes before his parents. Remember, he's in his early 30s. He's now a little boy. This is what his mother tells him. Your father's heart was set upon being a minister, but other claims forced him to give it up. When you were given to them, your father and mother laid you upon the altar, their firstborn, to be consecrated. If God saw fit as a missionary of the cross, and it has been their constant prayer that you might be prepared, qualified, and led to this very decision. We need parents like that today. Well, the Peyton household overflowed with gospel warmth, catechisms, and long walks to church. In fact, the mother often did not go to church with them because it was such a long walk. So she would stay home, and then they'd come back in the afternoon and rehearse everything that the preacher had talked about. John said that his father's face would radiate after his time's of secret prayer. The family knew he had been with God. Peyton said this. I used to look at the light on my father's face. And I wish I were like him. In spirit. Later on he tells the story. Some, one of the great, greatest quotes in the Peyton biography this is later on now when Peyton, it's actually not him going off to the mission field. It's actually him going off to college. And he and his father walked side by side, almost in unbroken silence. And his father's long beard streaming down his face and had his hand clutched in, uh, had his cap clutched in his hands. And Peyton was so excited to be off out in the great world by himself. And he, he ran off and he went over the hill. He was struck with guilt and he looked back at his father over the hill and he could see his father peering, looking for his son. This is what Peyton wrote as an old man later on in life. I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze and then, hastening on my way, vowed deeply and oft by the help of God to live and act so as never to grieve or dishonor such a father and mother as he had given me. The appearance of my father when we parted, his advice, prayers, and tears, the road, the dike, the climbing on it, and then walking away, head uncovered, have often, often, all through life, risen vividly before my mind. And to do so now while I am writing as if it had been but an hour ago. In my earlier years, particularly when exposed to many temptations, his parting form rose before me as that of a guardian angel. It is no Phariseeism, but deep gratitude, which makes me here testify that the memory of that scene not only helped by God's grace to keep me pure from the prevailing sins, but also stimulated me in all my studies that I might not fall short of His hopes and in all my Christian duties that I might faithfully follow His 
shining example, end quote. Think about that. He's studying at college. He wants to be lazy. I got my dad. He's thinking about giving up and not going to the mission field. I got my dad. I've got to make him proud. He's the one who set the standard. He set the example. I'm on the island. I want to quit. My wife and and child are dead. Everyone's gone. I want to go. And there, there was his father. That sterling example who rose up many years later, like it was an hour ago. And he said, that's the example that I want to follow and I want to live up to. Daily family worship was the highlight of the day and a non-negotiable in the Peyton home. Peyton wrote this, Never in temple or cathedral, on mountain or in glen, can I hope to feel that the Lord God is more near, more visibly walking and talking with men than under that humble cottage roof of thatch and oak and wood. What a testimony to his father and to his parents. He would talk about there was a particular room that his father would go into at a certain time of the day, and everyone knew this was his time of secret prayer, and they, they, they could not disturb him. It was a time of hush and awe around his father. The children used to gather around the elder Peyton and would bow on their knees as their father tearfully poured out his heart in prayers for the heathen around the world. The Peyton children were also expected to work hard. The father's shop was there in the home and Peyton talked about working from 6 o'clock in the morning with his father until 10 o'clock at night. And they would have only brief breaks for their meals. In time, Peyton became a tract distributor. So early on, he's already passing out tracts. He's already evangelizing. He's already telling others about Christ. And then he became an evangelist and a very successful evangelist in a mission called the Glasgow City Mission. And he would talk about how on Sunday mornings he would go to people's homes and he would go to the spiritually immature and he would pull them out of bed. He would actually go to their house at 6 o'clock in the morning and say, hey, let's go, time to go. Hey, that's not my responsibility, I'm the preacher. I mean, compare that to other, you hear about some Puritan stories where actually they would sing without the pastor and then the, the preacher would come after the singing He'd preach and then he'd leave. Here's Peyton. He's pulling people out of bed to come to church on time. Hundreds would attend his Bible classes. Fast forward now. He's in his early 30s, still single. And a call went out for new missionaries to go to the cannibals of the New Hebrides. The New Hebrides are a group of little islands off the northeastern coast of Australia. 
And so here you have Africa, and then you have India over here, and then you have Australia. And then here you have these little islands over here in the northeast of Australia called the New Hebrides. The Hebrides Islands were islands to the northwest of Scotland. And so now he's going to the New Hebrides, which were discovered by Captain Cook. Now people knew about these islands because... Some years earlier, one of the heroes, one of the household names, John Williams, who was actually Sir John Williams, had been horribly and tragically killed, cooked, and eaten on the shore of Aromanga, one of the islands of the New Hebrides, right in view of the ship that was anchored off the shore. What do you do when a man takes a little canoe with another friend to the island? You have to drop anchor. He goes to the shore. They're looking around. They go into the bush. All of a sudden, you see them running out. They're chased into the water, clubbed to death, pulled back, cooked and eaten. You can't go and get them. What do you do? They have to leave. And then they come back sometime later... So that they're able to retrieve the bones, which they say, supposedly, was John Williams. People did not forget that story. It lived on in the lore of the minds of those in the church in Europe. And now, people are asking for missionaries to go to that very same island and surprise, surprise, they couldn't find anyone. They even cast lots to find out who should go, and they couldn't find out who should go. So suddenly, Peyton comes forward and says, I'll go. And people say, what? (laughs) Not you, John. No, you're the best. This is for people we can lose. This is for people we can sacrifice. We don't want to sacrifice you because you are our prized pupil. He said, no, I'm going. So they did everything they could. This is the church now to bribe him not to go. They used Bible verses. They used money. They used logic to convince him not to go to the New Hebrides. Everyone... Nearly, except his parents tried to coax him not to go to these islands. In fact, one elderly gentleman stood up and said, The cannibals, you will be eaten by the cannibals. And Peyton's reply to that old man was one for the ages. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. 
And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Amen. Try to beat that. How do you respond to that? Have a seat. Let's pray for him as he goes on his way. Peyton leaves now for the islands with his new 19-year-old wife just before his 34th birthday. On the exterior, the New Hebrides were a series of 80 beautiful islands centered in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. But that was all on the outside. That was a veneer. You see, these islands had virtually no gospel light. The natives there were murderous. They were ignorant. They were what you would imagine. Bones to their nose, little clothing, barbaric. Having no written language and making idols out of nearly everything. Including trees, bugs, volcanoes, and even fingernails. A few months after arriving, Peyton's wife and newly born son died of malaria. He dug a single grave and buried them arm in arm. His retelling of that scene is emotional. Reading him recount that particular story. He says that he almost went mad with grief beside that lonely grave. Everyone, even including the missionaries, urged him to leave the island. He was on one of those islands in the New Hebrides called Tana. But he refused to leave his post of duty because he thought that if he left those islands, he would never have an opportunity to come back. So he said, I'm staying. For the next four years, he translated portions of the scriptures in the Tanese language. He won a few converts and started a half dozen mission stations. He was running for his life nearly every day. He often slept with his clothes on so as to be ready to escape at a moment's notice. He even had a little dog that the Lord used to terrify these cannibals from attacking him. It was a little Scottish terrier. Nearly all the missionaries that had joined him either died of sickness or were murdered by the cannibals. And those stories alone are incredible. On one occasion, he bit into fruit. And he took the fruit and he handed it to the witch doctors. And then he challenged them to kill him with their black magic. Well, after a week of failed attempts to kill him with something they called Nahak, 
And it was like the scene of Elijah with the prophets of Baal and jumping around and somehow trying to kill him. Peyton comes forward and says to him, My Jehovah God is stronger than your gods. He protected me and helped me. For he is the only living and true God. The only God that can hear or answer prayer from the children of men. God repeatedly protected Peyton from certain death. Many of the chiefs were devil worshippers and were determined to kill these new missionaries. Once when Peyton entered a hut to help a sick patient, a chief put a butcher's knife right up to the heart of Peyton. Peyton later wrote, I durst neither move nor speak except that my heart kept praying to the Lord to spare me. Or if my time was come to take me home to glory with himself. There passed a few moments of awful suspense. My sight went and came. Not a word had been spoken except to Jesus. And then the chief wheeled the knife around thrust it into the sugarcane leaf and cried to me, Go, go quickly. I ran for my life like a weary life, a weary four miles till I reached the mission house, faint, yet praising God for such a deliverance. Now, now, multiply that times dozens. That's the, that's the book. Page after page after page after page after page, running for his life. On another occasion, he determined to dig a well for the people, but no one would help him. Because they laughed, everyone knows that water comes from the sky. It doesn't come from the ground. And so there was Peyton digging a hole by himself, and day after day he dug into the soil And they only laughed at him. And day after day, growing more and more discouraged with each meter that he descended deep into the ground. And then suddenly water came. Quote, muddy though it was, I eagerly tasted it, lapping it with my trembling hand. And then I almost fell upon my knees in that muddy bottom as my heart burst up in praise to the Lord. It was water. It was fresh water. And he said, after that, the gospel quickly spread throughout the island He tells another story about how Jesus had protected him. Now he's running for his life. They're all looking for him. They have their killing spears and they have their tomahawks and their killing stones. And he climbs up into this chestnut tree. And there he is late at night with just the moon shining through the branches. And he can hear the cannibals running back and forth looking for the missionary to kill him. And he writes this. The hours I spent there that is in the tree, live all before me as if it were but of yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. 
Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then. Well, he was the only missionary now left on the island, and he finds a ship called the Bluebell that took him safely after four years to Australia. And for the next four years, Peyton spends going throughout Australia. Totally a foreigner there, and he just basically has a few knickknacks with him, and he's going from town to town walking. An ardent Sabbatarian refused to use public transport on the Sabbath. And after four years of galvanizing missionary zeal in Australia and Scotland, he marries Margaret Whitecross in Scotland and then returns to the New Hebrides, this time to a tiny neighboring island called Aniwa. And these are the fruitful years. If you can think of the sorrowful years, these would be the fruitful years on the island of Aniwa. He would see remarkable fruit for his labor on the island of Aniwa. They founded schools and orphanages. He and Maggie had many children, several of whom returned to the islands as missionaries. They won many to Christ. The evangelist in Scotland was an evangelist among the cannibals. Peyton wrote, At the moment when I put the bread and wine into those dark hands, once stained with the blood of cannibalism, but now stretched out to receive and partake the emblems and seals of the Redeemer's love, I had a foretaste of the joy of glory that that well nigh broke my heart to pieces. Well, trials persisted. Several of his children died on the islands. And again, just heartbreaking stories. Peyton believed that being called to missions is the greatest calling that a man can have. He wrote, quote, Let me record my immovable conviction that this, is the noblest service in which any human being can spend or be spent. And that, if God gave me back my life to be lived over again, I would without one quiver of hesitation lay it on the altar to Christ that he might use it as before in similar ministries of love. 
Especially among those who have never yet heard the name of Jesus. I deeply rejoice when I breathe that prayer that it may please the blessed Lord to turn the hearts of all my children to the mission field. And that he may open up their way and make it their pride and joy to live and die in carrying Jesus and his gospel into the heart of the heathen world. Later on in life, he took three trips around the world recruiting missionaries. He actually said that particular task of galvanizing missionary zeal off the islands was his greatest work. His last around the world voyage took place at age 76. He died at age 82, old enough to see thousands of converts singing to Jesus. He wrote, we took what care we could, and God the Lord did the rest. Or rather, he did all. For his wisdom guided us, and his power baffled them. God had blessed the faithful evangelist's work. At the end of his life, he wrote, quote, On our own anetium, 3,500 cannibals have been led to renounce their heathenism. On our new Hebrides, more than 12,000 cannibals have been brought to sit at the feet of Christ. Well, John G. Payton is a great example of an evangelist. But who is the greatest example of an evangelist in all of Scripture? Lawson? Uh, Jesus Christ. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. We think of Peyton who went from Scotland to the New Hebrides halfway around the world. But Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, left heaven and came to earth. And he came for one purpose. And that purpose was to die for sinners. And even while he was on this earth, do you remember in John 4 when it said that he had to travel to that despised region of Samaria because there was a harlot who needed to hear the gospel. And Jesus, the evangelist, went there to tell her of Christ She was converted. John Payton is but an arrow to point us to Scripture. And ultimately, an arrow to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ.